This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, a team of the world's leading scientists on climate, have once again delivered the world a dire warning. Humanity is on thin ice, and that ice is melting fast. This is our last chance to save the planet. The climate time bomb is ticking. This latest plea has cast fresh light on a long and fraught domestic debate. Is Labor's key climate policy good enough to significantly curb emissions? The 1.5 degree limit is achievable. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. And will the Greens agree to a deal without a guaranteed ban on any new coal and gas projects? Today, I'm talking to climate and environment editor Adam Morton and live news editor Patrick Keneally about whether Labor's climate policy will address the latest pleas from the IPCC. It's Friday, the 24th of March. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Regular on the full story, but um, welcome to the newsroom edition. It's great to be here. We seem to have a lot of IPCC reports coming out with dire warnings. Why should we pay attention to the one that came out this week, Adam? Well, this is sort of the one that brings it all together, I think, is the way to look at it. It's a synthesis report that brings together everything that we have heard over the past eight years into one summary, a fairly straightforward document. It's been described as the final warning, and it is in the sense that this is the last time we'll hear from the IPCC, the world's leading climate science body, until probably about 2030. Mm -hmm. And the message is that we're already at 1.1 degree of warming since pre-industrial times. We're headed to more than 1.5 degrees just if we let existing fossil fuel infrastructure run the course of its natural life, let alone introducing new fossil fuels into the system. The ramifications of that are really significant in terms of worsening extreme weather. We're already seeing that. It means more loss of life, more lives damaged. And then from there, if things keep going at two degrees, things get more dire still. And every fraction of a degree on that line matters. Uh, At the risk of going on too long, the other key point from the report, I think, is that we do have opportunity to address this and stave off the worst of the disaster. It really stresses that we have options, many of them affordable now, that could lead to a cut in global emissions by about 50% by 2030, using the things we talk about all the time, solar, wind, energy efficiency, don't cut down forests, stop developing new fossil fuels. And it's really a question of finance, who's going to help pay for this, and to some extent, climate justice. And those two things go hand in hand. Well, Patrick, let's just talk about no new fossil fuels for a minute. Can Labor continue to open new fossil fuel projects and say they're sticking to the Paris Accord? 
Well, Labor argues it can, partly because much of the fossil fuels that are mined or extracted in Australia are exported. So gas, for example, three quarters of the gas that we produce in Australia is exported. And those emissions don't count towards our national emissions. But Overall, they're still being burnt yeah. and they're going into the atmosphere. So the Greens argument, so this IPCC synthesis report comes in the middle of a kind of somewhat febrile debate about the safeguards mechanism, which is Labor's climate policy, which is going to get us to the 43% emissions cut, which they promised before the last election. But the Greens are pushing for much stronger action, including no new coal and no new gas. And that's, you know, what is at the centre of negotiations between them on the safeguards mechanism at the moment. Yeah, Adam, where are those negotiations at? It seems timely that this report comes out in the same week that they are negotiating with the Greens on this policy. Yes, and remarkably, Labor and the Greens both made the case that the report supports their position. Labor, that clearly they must have to get the safeguard mechanism passed because otherwise we will be doing less on climate change and the Greens quite rightly saying that the report makes clear that no new fossil fuels is one of the overarching messages. At the time of recording, which is Thursday morning, and this is kind of a moving feast, it may or may not have developed significantly by the time the podcast comes out, negotiations are ongoing between Labor and the Greens and some crossbenchers, David Pocock in the Senate in particular, over whether they can find some sort of middle ground that could get Labor's changes to the safeguard mechanism through. We, we probably should say really quickly, without getting into the technical detail, what the safeguard is supposed to do. Yes. It's a coalition policy that was promised to keep a lid on industrial emissions, stop them going up. It failed because they didn't use it. Labor says they'll use it to bring down emissions at most big polluting facilities by nearly 5% a year, with some exceptions. And companies can do that either by making cuts on site or by buying carbon offsets, which are contentious in their own right. The Greens and opponents of the scheme say, well, there are all sorts of problems with that, but the main one is if you're letting new coal and gas facilities open, they're just adding new industrial emissions. How does that add up to the goal of trying to bring them down? And now they're sort of talking over whether, and they have been for weeks, between Chris Bowen's office and Adam Bant's office over whether... There is a middle ground that would, I guess, impose some tougher, more stringent requirements on new coal and gas proposals that both sides could claim was consistent with their positions or consistent enough and worth going ahead with. And really, I mean, I think that Bowen and Bant could reach an agreement on that. But then the question will be whether the Greens party room, within which there's a range of views from do the best job we can and pass it, through to this is rubbish, why would we support it, given our position is no new coal and gas, whether they can come together and reach a unified position or close enough to. That's really where things are at. Mm. And Adam, you reported, I think, on Wednesday this week that Bob Brown has resigned from the Australian Conservation Foundation over this policy, Patrick. Why is the Conservation Foundation supporting it and why is he saying they shouldn't? I think that ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, quite reasonably wants to see some action on on climate change and see a policy which, although it may not be, you know, perfect, is going to put emissions in the right direction. Adam, I'm not sure if you agree. Is that their position? Look, their position is strengthen and pass it, mm. basically, and then keep fighting for to try and stop new coal and gas. 
And this is a long-running argument between the Greens and Labor that goes all the way back to 2009 with the CPRS, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, under Kevin Rudd, where you know the Greens voted with the Liberals to block the scheme because they said it wasn't good enough. And that kind of ghost of 2009 really haunts mm. the current negotiations, and I think it's a fear for a lot of people. But if we miss out on this chance, we'll go back into this kind of lost decade of climate policy. And one of the backdrops to Bob Brown returning his life membership of the Australian Conservation Foundation goes back to 2009 when the ACF's view was that the better option was to back what Labor was proposing, whatever its faults, and the Greens didn't think that. There are rifts that run quite deep within the environment movement that are um, running below the surface in all of this at the moment. Bob Brown claims that there are 116 coal and gas projects that Labor could approve. What do you think of that number, Adam? How many are likely to be approved? Look, there are a handful, about seven big gas ones and some more coal projects that are already considered by the government likely or certain to go ahead that are not currently counted. So we definitely get, and some of them are very big. And then from there, there are another few dozen that have applications in for approval with federal and state authorities. And you could reasonably assume that they'll go ahead if they can. Uh, Some of that 114 won't happen. Some of them, a big chunk of them are still at feasibility stage. Some of them are dormant. Mm. But, you know, activists and Brown who raised that are kind of making the point, I suppose, that we don't know how many will go ahead. These are all listed on a government website. So we should take that on face value. Mm. The... Real number will be smaller, but it still could be really, really significant. You know, perhaps the debate shouldn't get caught up in the actual number, but, you know, whether we should be allowing these to go ahead at this point. Has Labor already approved any while they've been in power? Tanya Plibersek, the Environment Minister, recently approved an expansion of a coal seam gas operation in Queensland and has knocked back uh, Clive Palmer's coal mine up in Queensland which, to be fair, was fairly low-hanging fruit. I think even the Coalition probably would have knocked that one back. And she's called in about 18 fossil fuel projects that had been previously given approval sort of to reassess them. Um, We don't know where that's going to go. Beyond that, no, it's all going to be a case-by-case basis. And one of the things that will happen now, given the new focus on coal and gas, is every time an approval decision comes up, it's going to get a lot more attention than it did a year or two ago, I would imagine. I think an important point to make is not everything, there's 150 or 200 odd industrial facilities that are under the safeguards mechanism and emissions are going to be capped if Labor's policy passes. But not all of these are fossil fuel projects. There's a lot of things that are, you know, cement manufacturing, you know, smelters, large industrial projects, which are, and some of these are quite hard to abate. So there is a role with offsets to, in those sectors. And I know, Adam, you've written a bit about it and the environment team here has written a lot about it. There are problems with offsets, but in some of these industries, they are going to be very hard to abate and there's not current technology which allows easily to abate these sectors. That's one of the challenges with the safeguard mechanism. It's it's not where you would be starting, right, if you were starting from scratch. Labor, for political reasons, having been beaten up with scare campaigns on climate for a long time, chose to adapt a coalition policy. It lumps in fossil fuel projects well, we know what their future is supposed to be. With a whole bunch of industrial projects, nearly half of the projects under them are steel and aluminium and cement, that we do need to have a future. They need to clean up and they need to continue. And yes, some of those will need 
ways to offset their emissions until there's technology available. In a perfect world, these wouldn't all be in the same scheme. Talking about um, places that you might start if you were doing this from scratch, transport policy is one interesting one which we've been writing about this week. So transport emissions are the fastest growing sector of emissions in the Australian economy. And this week, we've been doing some great reporting by Elias Vasante and Josh Nicholas, one of our data editors, on just the rise in very large SUVs and dual cab utes. So almost all of the top 10 cars are either large SUVs or or big utes. And one of the reasons for that is we don't have a cap on emissions for passenger vehicles in Australia. Labor had promised this at the previous election, but ditched its policy amid, you know, being targeted by the coalition over this. We don't have a fuel standards policy. Again, Labor had gone to the previous election with this, but ditched it in the face of coalition opposition. And those areas seem like really easy wins if you wanted to bring down emissions. We're very focused on the safeguard mechanism right now, and it's going to be really important. But there are other policies in the works, and the government has promised something on transport. And if, it does, if it's not a strong policy, you know, that's going to be a major ongoing issue with our national emissions. And bigger and bigger vehicles is a really significant problem. Let's just talk about the coalition for a moment, (laughs) because as you've said, Patrick, it is their policy. Why won't they pass it? Look, I don't think I've seen a well-articulated argument against the safeguard mechanism from the coalition, but, you know, they are pretty much in the game of where Tony Abbott was years ago, just opposing it, I think, you know, political purposes, really. They signed the Paris Agreement, though, Adam, didn't they? So uh, how can they argue they sign up to Paris and then not pass this quite modest policy? Well, I agree with Pat. Their position isn't entirely clear. I mean, they're focused very much on running a campaign on cost of living and they're linking their opposition to the safeguard to that. Uh, They kind of ignore that nearly all business groups think that something needs to be done and support the safeguard, which you would think would be the natural coalition constituency, but perhaps isn't anymore. Their position doesn't make any sense because it's, yeah, we should do some stuff on climate change, just not any of the options that are ever presented and realistic. Mm. And let's just talk about the attention. You know, Adam, before you said there's going to be a lot of attention for every single fossil fuel decision that gets made. And these negotiations are hard, but the fact we're even talking about phasing out coal and gas is quite new, isn't it, Patrick? It is really amazing. This is a idea which for many years was was sort of on the fringes of the debate. So in 2013, The Guardian globally ran a campaign called Keep It in the Ground, which was then saying, if we're going to meet our climate goals, we need to stop extracting coal and gas. At that point, it was a fringe idea. It wasn't in any of the international agreements, any language around phasing out coal or fossil fuels in general. So in, in 10 years we've come a long way where this is central to the debate we're having about emissions reduction in Australia. It's also, you know, a central part of the international agreements now. There's language around the um, phase down, I think it is, of coal rather than the phase out. But, you know, that is massive progress in the space of 10 years. But even within the debate in Australia, I think over the last, you know, 12 months or, or even the last few months, this has really become a much more widely accepted idea that, Coal is not going to be around forever, definitely. And the idea that gas being a transitory fuel, I think, is even under pressure itself. Yeah, and if you think ahead, imagine the next election campaign, however the safeguard debate plays out, 
the Greens are going to signal they're going to run really hard on new coal and gas. A lot of teals, teal independents support that position. We're going to see that as a much more frontline position in the election campaign. And the Greens argue that a lot of the country is ahead of the government and the parliament on this issue. I think that we shouldn't uh, dismiss the role of the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in that, who has run a, a really aggressive campaign with some really quite striking language about the need to get off fossil fuels. And at each uh, major UN climate talk meeting, we're seeing an argument about strengthening the language from no discussion of fossil fuels to phasing down coal to the need to include gas to whether the language should be phasing out. This might seem arcane, but it actually does reflect a shift in thinking internationally. And it's coming on. Not fast enough, but it's coming on. Next, artificial intelligence and a good day to be from Tassie. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Patrick, what was it for you this week? The story that fascinated me was Nick Evershed, our data editor, who is an all-round genius. But he used AI to clone his own voice and then went on to use that cloned voice to fool his own Centrelink account, which raises concerns, particularly as I'm speaking on a podcast, that if you have a sample of someone's voice, you can then get into their account with very little details. But it's interesting. It comes at a time where AI is really having a moment. You know, Google have released Bard, which is their version of chat GPT, which, you know, people have having been having great fun with. But also it has some kind of dark sides and serious um, implications as well, as well as the chatbots. There's also these um, amazing image generators that people have been playing around with. And I saw a great thread this week of pictures of Trump, which were produced by an editor from Bellingcat, um, a website that counters disinformation. But they were all pictures of Trump getting arrested, then jailed, then staging a um, Shawshank-like redemption breakout from jail and then going to McDonald's for a um, cheeseburger at the end of it all. But they looked good. They didn't look perfect. But, you know, this technology is moving so quickly we Mm. don't know where it's going to end up. For anyone who hasn't heard it, we made a great episode about that with Nick Evershed on Monday. Go back and listen. Um, Adam, what can't you get out of your head? I've been, we're not lost in climate policy, been thinking a lot about the protests we've seen around the visit to Australia by this self-styled anti-trans activist who calls herself Posey Parker. And we saw the protest, the scenes in Melbourne where there were Nazis on the steps of parliament, which is really extraordinary. And a lot's been said about that. I want to put a slightly more uh, positive spin on it. Um, I live in Tasmania and Uh, subsequent to the events in Melbourne, she came down and attempted to hold a rally on the steps of Parliament uh, in Tasmania. And in response, there were uh, several hundred trans rights, uh, as First Dog on the Moon pointed out in his cartoon, actually human 
rights mm. supporters who rallied on the lawns in front of Parliament House and massively outnumbered the very small number of people who were there to hear Parker speak. And her event couldn't go ahead in the way that she'd hoped by um, shouting her down. And, and for everyone who says, what about freedom of speech? Well, freedom of speech doesn't come without freedom from consequences. And I thought that was, uh, it was a good day to be a Tasmanian. And, and that has been generally reflected um, in the response here in the Tasmanian community. Mm, it was a good day for Tassie. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adam. Thanks. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in your feeds on Sunday morning with a special report from the front lines of the New South Wales election, so do listen out for that. We'll bring you everything you need to know as soon as we know it. Today's episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning. The executive producer was me, Gabrielle Jackson. And just to remind you, we did have an episode on Labor's key climate policy, the safeguard mechanism, with Adam Morton last week, which, if you want more detail on that, he explains very well. Please go back and listen. And our episode with Nick Evershed on how he fooled the Centrelink program with an AI clone of his voice is on Monday. Do go back and listen. Well, I will see you. will probably be a very light night for me on Saturday night. I'll see you there. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.